some ineffectual, privileged, effete, soft penis debutante. You want to start a street fight with me? Bring it on. But you're going to be surprised by how ugly it gets. You don't even know my real name. I'm the fucking Lizard King. <laughs> Hello, friends, and welcome to another fun-filled and opinion-packed episode of Have You Seen This? Thank you for finding us and for pressing play. This week, we hit 100 followers on the Facebook page, so thank you so much for liking and subscribing. And just remember to share the love, because I cannot tell you how much it helps my ego. As always, with me all the way through to the end credits, are uh, the best co-hosts a girl could wish for. It's only bloody Mercer and bloody Breen. Gents, how are you? <laughs> how are you doing, buddy? You all right? How's everyone doing? Are we all okay? Yeah, grand. I'm absolutely fantastic. For someone who doesn't do any preparation, you really put a lot of thought into these uh, intros. Just my opening sentence and the rest just falls to shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we've got a very special guest this week in the form of one half of the podcast, Mike and Matt at the Movies, a fellow who once gatecrashed an old lady's Chinese Christmas party with me. It's only Matt Bloody <laughs> Bayliss. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. Thanks. Thank you guys for having me on. No, you're welcome. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Before we continue the usual format, I do have a wee shout out to give. So a few weeks ago, we spoke with the star and the writer of a low budget but high in greatness feature film, Bear. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I believe it's available on Amazon Prime. We haven't spoken about it much. Uh, anywho. <laughs> is it available on Amazon Prime? Apparently it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, I believe it is available on Amazon Prime. And I believe it is, if you put type in Bear in your search, it's the top top search excellent so a friend of the show and long-time listener gavin pointed me in the direction of a wonderful composer by the name of claire lawton so what i'm going to do is i'm going to put claire's youtube channel uh, link it in the facebook pages uh, and give her a listen she's created a really beautiful series of compositions that could easily fit into any movie so paul if you need anything for your next project with david you should definitely look up claire i'm sure she'd love to get involved i'll have a chat maybe i'll set up a, a compose off with uh, harrison oh. who's the composer of our first uh, of, of a film called bear that's available on amazon prime a film Film called Bear. Well, multiple composers could work. Right then, on to the big question. We end each pod with a question, which means I have to start each pod with a question. So, which Oscar-nominated director was originally at the helm of the first Borat movie in 2006, but quit the project officially due to creative differences, but it was actually down to a number of credible death threats he or she received? Anyone know the answer? Now, I didn't know the answer to this, but I'm not going to lie, I'll hold my hands up. Oh, you Googled it. I, w- I did. Yeah, oh, but I, I disqualified. Holding my hands up, I I needed to know the answer because I thought it was a really really interesting question. I did ultimately look this up, although to be honest, I'm not sure now when I've got in my head whether I remember this right director. But <laughs> Matt, do you know? No, no. Um, I was tempted to Google it, but I thought I better not cheat. Hammond, four episodes in, you've got us all stumped because I had absolutely no idea. I can make some educated guesses, and the top two I thought bizarrely were Darren Aronofsky or maybe Adam McKay who is obviously a a big comedy director who might be making something at the time. Slightly closer with the second guess. It was, in fact, Todd Phillips. Ah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so Todd Phillips was in charge of the first Borat movie, but ran away when he got a few death threats. Apparently it was the rodeo scene, so when Borat goes to the rodeo in Texas, Todd Phillips was in charge up until that point, but 
received many, many death threats that he took very seriously. So he left the project. There we have it. So I've stumped you. I'm not sure whether I'm going to get you. In fact, no, I think the end of pod question this week might be as tricky. We'll see when we get there. Let's not jump the gun. Even though it's three against one each week, Hammond, I think we should keep a running tally. So that is is officially... 3-1 now to us. Is it? Yes. Is it? Did you get last week? Yes, we did definitely got last week. Remember we had the whole mermaid, murd man com- controversy, <laughs> whether or not they're a real human or not? Uh, yeah, I'd blank that from my memory. Thanks. Ow. <laughs> our regular show pre-starter, which is our big picks from the small screen. It's a highlight of two or three things we've watched or streamed outside of the two films in review. Obviously, there are no cinemas anymore, so we are reliant on such things. And we'd like to start with our guest. So, Matt, tell us what's been keeping you entertained over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, I've had a lot of time on my hands, so I've probably got a bit of a brain style list, um, but I know you don't want to go on for like three hours. Unbelievable. Well, the guests dissing me now. We, we, don't, we don't mind if the guests go on. It's just we've, we're sick of Paul. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll get the first one out of the way. I did watch this little film called Bear on Prime. Oh. Um, but we, oh. but we, won't bother, we won't bother talking about that one, though. Uh, <laughs> also, on the back of one of your previous podcasts, I did watch Infamous, um, the Brad James short film that you spoke about the other week. That was that was quite interesting. It was really beautifully shot. So it was quite, quite an interesting thing to watch. Then I've watched, uh, we've eventually finished watching The Boys Season 2, which I absolutely loved. So good. Um, mm. And it's just, yeah. I mean, I think someone mentioned about the whale scene the other week. And yeah. yeah. That's just mental. So, um, <laughs> and over the weekend, watched Truth Seekers as well on Prime, which I thought was really, really good. Yeah, as well. I, got a couple, I got a couple of episodes into that. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, they, they, the way they handle like the, the horror genre is quite good, but it's also quite funny at the same time as well. So, is that the uh, Nick Frost thing? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Nick yeah, Frost, yeah. yeah. It's great. I really loved it. Yeah. It was so, because I didn't really know what to expect. It's like quite short episodes, mm-hmm. so you can kind of breeze through it quite quickly. And then, obviously, with it being Halloween, I watch a lot of scary stuff, but I don't really like scary stuff. So, um, <laughs> so watched um, like watched the Hill House and Blind Manor series. Uh, also got around to watching Hereditary as well, which is pretty fucked up. Let's oh, be honest. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then I've watched a few bits on TV, some like cheesy like stuff like Spy and Keeping Up with the Joneses, which aren't great films, but they're enjoyable. And uh, since um, towards the end of like lockdown one, I started watching the whole of the Arrowverse. So I'd never watched any of the DC TV stuff before, but then sort of randomly decided that I wanted to start watching it. So I think I'm currently like halfway through season six of Arrow, four of Flash, three of Supergirl, three of Legends of Tomorrow, and now Black Lightning's just joined like the timeline as well. So that's kind of bugging me down quite a bit. Wow. So uh, so yeah, so fortunately I've got a lot of time on my hands, so I can kind of just keep ticking over watching lots of different things. So I was just trying to keep it varied rather than just watching all of, of one thing. So. Yeah, for sure. Nice. I heard you talking about this on your uh, your podcast. You were something like 200. There's like, uh, how many episodes in all are there of the Arrowverse? I think if you include like the web series and stuff like that, it's up to like 600, I think. So I'm about 300 and something in, I think. Mental. <sighs> Diminishing returns on some of those series. I mean, some of it, some of it's brilliant. Um, some of it is kind of just, mm. because they're long series, they're all like 22, 23 episodes long. So there's, there's always a bit of just filler um, in each series in each season but the first two episodes of black knight you know watch are really really yeah. good though so, and they're really current as well um in terms of like the storylines that they're looking at and everything so i'm actually quite intrigued by that probably more than anything at the moment nice. i watch a series on youtube called vfx artist react and they did supergirl and i've mm. got to say the special effects looked absolutely shocking <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's weird between the shows because like um the the sfx in the, in the flash has been 
brilliant from the very first episode, but then the other series don't seem to have the same team working on them or the same budget working on them. So it's uh, so it's quite weird, sort of like flicking between the series. Very good, cool. Paul, we've talked about Truth Seekers already, which I thought was great. I really enjoyed it. Mandalorian season two started on Disney Plus. Yes, please. Uh, <laughs> oh yes. Oh my god, it is. I mean, the first season was amazing. Boy, have they stepped it up in season two. It's so good. There's so many back references uh, to the rest of the, the Star Wars universe. It just works. I'm not going to talk any details about it at all. If you get a chance to watch it, if you haven't, just do it. It's amazing. Uh, it's, I think John Favreau is doing a brilliant, brilliant job creating a fantastic universe that you know, we would have liked to have maybe seen in the films as well. Watched Ad Astra, finally. I've never got around to watching Ad Astra with Brad Pitt. I really liked it. Uh, I, a lot of people were sort of down on it, saying it was a bit slow, and it's fundamentally it's apocalypse now in space. But I really liked it. I watched it in UHD as well. It looked really, really pretty on the screen. Mm. So, and I, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a very different film from the one I was expecting in a good way. So I really enjoyed that. Two words, Paul: space pirates. <laughs> yes, space pirates on of the course. moon. On the moon, uh, that sequence was great. I mean, yeah, uh, nonsense, but it was yeah, quite oh, yeah. good. I mean, it looked nonsense. amazing. It sounds Brad Pitt though. Bit mopey. Yeah, that's the film. <laughs> Brad Astra is sad Astra in space. Astra. <laughs> very true. It's very I true. really liked it the first time I watched it. The second time I watched it, all the problems that other people had with it became much more prevalent. Yeah, I think it's maybe it's one of those films that doesn't stand up to repeat viewing. But uh, yeah, so I think I'd give it enough space between people moaning about it to me then watching it that I'd forgotten what they were moaning about. So I yeah, quite enjoyed it. Yeah, watched cool. Motherless Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Ed Norton wrote, directed, and starred. Uh, play, plays a gumshoe in that. With the, that he's got Tourette's. It's a great film. I really enjoyed it. It's a real film noir that you don't really see very often anymore. It's a really good cast. Well played. It's quite an understated film. And uh, really enjoyed it. So worth worth looking at that. That's on Sky. And I watched Calm with Horses on Netflix. Did very well at one of the big film festivals in in Ireland. And great. It reminded me of Bullhead that we watched. Yeah, it reminded me. To a certain extent of that, Tony, and, and, and when you sort of the way it's shot, so if you watch it, I, I really recommend it. Fantastic performances. Uh, yeah, really, really enjoyable film uh, in a weird way because it's very dark and twisted, but it's uh, it's worth a look. So, yeah, so that's me this week. All right. Awesome. Lizard King. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a relatively new subscriber to Sky Television. Um, I decided to just get it to get me through the second lockdown, mainly because of Sky documentaries. So I've watched two of my favorites this week. So I watched Senna again. Which so good still Great. gets me every time I watch it. I can't no. get to the end of it without shedding a few tears. You know what's coming, but it's just so powerfully made that documentary. I adore yeah. it. And then last night, and I finished it this morning. Actually, was Man on Wire, which I haven't seen for a long oh, time. Which I yeah. I forgot how much I love this documentary. the The subject of it, the the guy Philippe Petit, is such a good storyteller. When he's on screen, I just hang on his every word and the bravery and the balls it took to to climb the World Trade Center and the Sydney Harbour Bridge and to free wire across them is just just incredible. Mm. So, yeah, given those two docs a watch. That film is absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Have you seen The Walk starring Jason Gordon-Levitt uh, playing Philippe? I have. I watched it not long after, I don't think. Was it out r- roughly around the same Yeah, it was about the same time, time, which kind of baffled me as to why you would make a film about the subject when you've got such a good documentary that already exists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have seen The Walk. I mean, if Joe Gordon-Levitt's selling it, I'm buying it. Um, I thought it was great in yeah. it. But, uh, Even the French accent? Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it was awful. Well, I might give it a rewatch and just <laughs> see. But yeah, Man on Wire is just, I forgot how much I just loved that documentary. Yeah, 
that is amazing. I gave Parasite a rewatch because it's been a few months since I've seen it and I still love it today as much as the very first time I saw it. It's exceptional. Um, and then I had a bit of a Ridley Scott blast. So from 2007, I watched American Gangster with Denzel Washington, Russell Crowe, uh, Idris Elba, makes an appearance in it, which I completely forgot about. Cuba Gooden Jr., Josh Brolin, the partly biographical tale of Harlem Kingpin, Frank Lucas. Not one of my favourite Denzel films, but it's certainly certainly up there. I think it's great. Maybe it just, it's let down a little bit by runtime, I think. And then just a bit of nonsense, actually. So 40-Year-Old Virgin, I just needed a bit of nonsense. So it, it stands up. I only mentioned this. Film. Yeah, um, I'm, I've only mentioned it because I feel it's relevant to one of the films we're reviewing later. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why when we get to that part. I watched Game Over Man. I don't know if you've seen this. So I've mentioned Workaholics quite a lot, the series I watched. So this is essentially, it's all the guys from Workaholics have made a feature film, which is essentially diehard, but full of toilet humor and knob gags and recreational drug use. So <laughs> if, if those three, four things float your boat, then you should watch Game Over Man. It's, it's a fairly, it's just nonsense from start to finish, but it's, it's toilet humor and it's funny. And then finally, I discovered a series on Netflix called Swedish Dicks. Holy, holy recommend it. It's fucking hilarious. So it's essentially that. It's about two guys from Sweden in America becoming private detectives. Um, I'm a couple of episodes in and I'm completely hooked. So if you want a bit of nonsense, 22, 23 minutes per episode, it's brilliant. And that was me. Merce, over to you. Borat film, subsequent movie film. I watched that, and I've got to say, I didn't really find it that funny. Shocking, political, unbelievable, yes. And I think, um, Hammond, you were right when you sort of said, I would have liked to have seen this in the cinema. I think if there were people around me laughing at it, I probably would have got on board with it more. Hmm. But as it was, I just, it just wasn't very funny. I wanted to get more from it. I really like Maria Bakalova, is the daughter of, of Borat. She is fantastic isn't she just absolutely game and, and the things that they both do to sort of egg each other on in those those situations the debutante's ball was the highlight for me in terms of just being unable to actually watch what was playing out on the screen yeah it was very well done and i i'm, I'm glad it exists and essentially I, I'm, I'm so glad it ends with that message at the end vote now it's really i think it's an important thing to come out before the election in sort of my continuing mission to watch films that are a little bit misunderstood whose ambition probably exceeds its actual grasp in terms of watching chronicles riddick a couple of weeks ago i rewatched 2012's cloud atlas by the wazowskis and tom twyker it's an admirable failure of a film have you guys seen cloud atlas first of yeah. all tom, tom hanks is great i vaguely remember it tom hanks I mean, isn't it tom yeah. hanks and yeah, um great, hugh grant i mean all the cast are pretty much really game for it they really commit like totally fully even when the sort of the script asks them to do some let's say some racially dubious things in terms of the prosthetics and the makeup that they're wearing and the different sort of races that they portray um across this sort of epic six different narratives different time periods spanning tale um i think the the links between the characters are really quite tenuous at times um, they really try and, and, and make that make this a connective tissue of this thing sort of go together but the film is, is a real slog to get through it's a shame because i think like maybe half of it really works but i think if you take out the, sort of remove those elements and have just some linear stories playing separate from the whole it probably would just be a very dull generic sort of short film but i just i love that it exists i love that they were again they were given this budget they made this film and there's nothing else really like it and yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, I admire it and respect it more than I actually did, you know, enjoy it watching it. 
again. Uh-huh. It's based on a book, isn't it? It was one of the is, yeah. books they say was unfilmable, and the Wachowskis decided to give it a go. I'm not sure the Wachowskis proved that person wrong. <laughs> <to accept that. laughs> um, but it's interesting. A uh, Curioso, uh, again. I watched 2011's The Hunter, directed by Daniel Netham. This has got William Dafoe in it. So he plays a, a mercenary uh, who goes to the Tasmanian wilderness in Australia um, to find the last Tasmanian tiger so a dubious biotech company can get their hands on the DNA so they can be a big player on the evil DNA circuit. I don't know. I don't, they didn't really explain that bit. It's really, really good. If you get a chance to track this down, wonderfully shot. The wilderness looks fantastic. As you'd expect, Defoe is incredible. He gets involved with a single mum and their two children, and the relationship between him and the children especially is, is very touching, but it's got some really sort of gritty moments to it as well. So if you get a chance to track it down, definitely do it. Um, yeah, really, really good film. And those are my highlights. to entertainment you can't beat a good film so god the next section is always tricky isn't it we normally talk about the uk box office but there is none so uh, (laughs) over over to you ben for uh this next section yes well unlike you hammond i like to do some preparation on the show so i have taken this into account and what i've got for you now is a list of the top 30 most watched vod releases to date in 2020, this was a list based on video viewers who in the US were polled. 13 to 64, they were asked what they watched in the first seven days of the release of these films. And so I've got the top 10 from this list. I'm just going to reel it off and see if we have any sort of reactions or things that you'd expect. So at number one, it's Hamilton, the movie on Disney+. Plus. Sort of a mixed bag of reactions on our previous show. Some of us love it, some of us hate it. Straight in, Borat, number two, subsequent movie films coming at number two. Then we've got My Spy. My Spy is the Dave Bautista one. Yeah, it looks Brilliant. awful. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> for all the wrong reasons it's amazing so really that's coming okay, from a wrestling fine. fan so any any, yeah, any, exactly, any, yeah. any wrestler makes a film apparently it's amazing <laughs> number four is Extraction number five you've got Phoenix and Ferb I think it's an animated film number six is Mulan which is surprising because it had that pay barrier The Old Guard which is something that we've watched and mm. talked about uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7 which was last week's uh, in review film mm. Roald Dahl's The Witch is at number nine which is available on HBO Max it isn't available in the UK and then number ten Paul's favourite The Lovebirds oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just unbelievable america what are you doing unbelievable i mean they've got they've got they've got one vote right this week but sure yeah, that's an apt question to be asking uh, right now <laughs> yeah they've got one vote right and the, the lovebirds is wrong on so many levels so this this is absolutely dominated by disney and netflix with only a couple from amazon prime and hbo max and vod releases and what's interesting is that a lot of the stuff that's in the top is the stuff that you would expect to be in the top if the cinemas were open so you're talking mainstream affair action blockbusters comedies you know more kind of dialogue heavy like the trial of the chicago seven is probably the only thing on that list that's going to get any kind of oscar attention i don't think hamilton um qualifies because it was filmed what four years ago i don't know if that that probably won't be put forward Mm. for any oscars so yeah interesting list any reactions to that i mean i i still haven't seen hamilton i'm still refusing to give disney a penny of my hard-earned furlough money (laughs) The, the reaction to to hamilton for me doesn't doesn't fill me with enough confidence to actually warrant paying for it and watching it it's it's one of them things i mean we we obviously in our cinemas um previously we do a lot of national theater and stuff i think if hamilton ever got the chance to have a run in the cinemas it would make a lot of money and when you look at something like fleabag that sells out night after night after night regardless mm. of, regardless of the cinema we put it in there's definitely an appetite for this sort of thing but yeah yeah 100 so, i mean I, i'm glad it's number one i think it probably deserves the number one spot even though it's it's disney but yes i i'm still 
sticking to my guns and refusing to pay Disney anything for anything this year. I think Disney spent 90 million to get this. And I think their intention was actually to maybe put it out in the cinemas in a few years time. But mm. obviously with the pandemic, they decided to put it straight onto the streaming platform. Yeah. You're going to struggle, mate, because Disney own everything. So at one point, know, the, the, your money, your hard-earned furlough money is going to make it back to, to the big mouse at some point. And that's fine. As long as I'm not consciously doing it, I'm all right with this. Paul, Matt, any reactions to this list? Disappointment that Lovebirds <laughs> is in there, obviously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think there's any huge surprises in there. Uh, no. it'd be, it would be interesting to see what the top 10 would be from a UK perspective. Yeah. Or a Europe, European perspective, because I think it'd be very different. Yeah, there would certainly be some titles that, that wouldn't be in that top 10 that are in the American one. Mm. But yeah, I don't think there's any any massive surprises. Obviously, it tends to be, it's always these things you'll see on an IMDb top 100 list. Films will suddenly appear in the top 10 because they're like the most recent. And it's not because they're necessarily better than the other films that have been there for years and years and years. It's just that more people are voting because they've just seen it. And I think that you get with these these polls, that's what you get. And it's it's reflective of that period, but it's not reflective of the whole, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. No, totally. Yeah. So I think it would be remiss of us not to move on to the new section without first starting uh, with the sad passing of Sean Connery, who died uh, recently at 90. It's difficult to talk about Sir Connery because obviously he's beloved by so many, mostly for his role as James Bond. Unfortunately, though, his sort of legacy is somewhat hampered by his attitudes, let's say, towards uh, abuse, uh, female abuse, uh, unfortunately. A lot of the obituaries are sort of skimming over this. I just want to sort of address the elephant in the room straight away. I mean, it is something that he he said in an interview a long time ago. And then 20 years later, in a subsequent uh, interview in the 80s, he doubled down on the fact that he said that. However, it has come to light. I was reading in the Irish Times, they, they ran a piece on this. And it, in, in 2006, he did say to his close friends and colleagues that he doesn't believe that uh, any any abuse to, to women of any level is, is acceptable. Um, this is after he retired, so it's not something he said publicly. But sort of that aside, I think let's just talk about the man and his, and his work. And, you know, for me, he is, he is Bond. What about you guys? Yeah, he is the iconic Bond. I mean, he started the whole thing. He is the benchmark which every other Bond has been measured. He was fantastic in that role, but I mean, he was there's so much more th- than that. And you, it, I mean, the iconic roles he's created outside of the Bond franchise, The Untouchables, his mm. performance in that, although being the, the first Scottish-Irish person in the history of cinema, <laughs> uh, with, with his accent uh, was hysterical. But he was, was he nominated for an Oscar for that? Great performance in, in that movie. Obviously, uh, you know, he's Indiana Jones' dad. You know, is again, <laughs> fantastic in that movie. And he was fantastic in the rock there's also some of his lesser known films i think are incredible there's a brilliant film called the hill which is set it's a prison for service personnel and he's in prison was one of the prisoners and it's and the hill is this particular discipline that they put them through if they sort of step out of line uh, it's a fantastic movie i'd thoroughly recommend looking it out if you can find it but then there's the man who would be king in with michael kane seek that film out it is fantastic both he and michael kane are brilliant in that movie you will love that movie go away and watch it uh, yeah i think going away from like the bond stuff i think paul mentioned the rock which is one of my favorite films and uh being, you know stuff like um highlander as well for again like the the spanish prince with the scottish accent um <laughs> yeah. so you know th- there's a lot of stuff like outside of bond that he did and it's um you know it's so memorable so it, it is a shame. I mean, he obviously had a good innings, but it, it's always a shame to lose someone like that. I mean, just echoing what you guys said, he was, for many years, he was my favourite Bond. I loved what Connery 
kind of invented and did with the role and yeah his later stuff so you know even something like entrapment was was a bit cheesy but you know sean connery doing what sean connery does best he's Mm. suave older gentleman who can seduce Catherine zeta jones if he so chooses it's you know what do we do but yeah very very sad passing indeed there's some really random films that have come up in this conversation about connery i don't (laughs) think he was a particularly versatile actor i mean we've we've touched upon the fact that he just didn't give a shit when it came to accents and i think his early career certainly with bond the, the roles were sort of crafted around him. But I think like later on, as you said, Paul, his portrayal of Indiana Jones' father in The Last Crusade. And then actually, I was thinking back to, I, I sort of like him as a fatherly figure. So in Terry Gilliam's Time Balance from 1981, where he plays Agamemnon, yeah. I thought it was a really, really touching way that he was sort of developed in his, um, his older life. It's such a shame that his last film was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But the less said about that piece of shit, <laughs> the better. Uh, so, that's, <laughs> so that's Sean Connery, who passed away at 90. Right, guys, we um, can't have a podcast without talking about Tenet and unfortunately it has to come up again. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, definitely. I mean, mate, look, if, if we had a pound jar for every time Tenet and Bear came up, like who would be in the who would be... Is that Bear that's available on Amazon Prime? You can keep saying it, mate. I'm just going to head to the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking to the LA Times, Chris Malone has finally come out to sort of talk about the release strategy for Tenet and obviously Warners were very concerned with the figures. And uh, this is the quote, I'm just going to read it to you now because I think it's really it's it's fantastic that we've got someone essentially in our corner right now. Back the industry. And um, so he said, to me, it's much more about what's the new reality we're living in. Warner Brothers released Tenet, and I am thrilled that it has made almost $350 million. But I am worried that the studios are drawing the wrong conclusions from our release, that rather than looking at where the film has worked well and how that can provide them with a much needed revenue, they're looking at where it hasn't lived up to pre-COVID expectations and will start using that as an excuse to make exhibition take all the losses from the pandemic instead of getting into the game and adapting or rebuilding our business, in other words. Long term, movie going is a part of life, like restaurants and everything else. And um, so he said that to the LA Times um, earlier last week. So I think this is something that we've sort of been echoing on the podcast already, that people are drawing the wrong conclusions. Studios are potentially not really seeing the bigger picture. Exhibitors are taking the hit. And now with the uh, lockdown of cinemas, so all cinemas are closed, not just Cine World at the moment. What are you guys thinking right now? I mean, do you think that Nolan was right to come out with this? Or do you think he should have said something sooner? Because he has been very absent in the conversation since the film came out in, in August. I mean, what are you guys' feelings on this? I, just, I feel like he, he didn't need to immediately jump to the defense of his film or the release strategy. It, it was what it was. Somebody had to go first. And thankfully for us, he breathed a little bit of life back into the industry and, and just allowed us to operate and allowed people to have some confidence in, in what we were doing. Regardless of, of the decisions made by certain exhibitors, we were going to be closed now anyway due to the national lockdown. Mm. I, I still disagree with things going straight onto to video on demand, etc. I still think these these people that are holding this product need to wait and need to need to release it so people can watch it as it's intended on the big screen. I just think there's so much going on in the world, so much going on, particularly in America, you know. Over the last few weeks, nobody's really needed to hear from from Christopher Nolan. So maybe he's just waited for the world to settle down, so he can realise, you know, maybe, maybe his opinion can be heard a bit a bit further and a bit wider, rather than be be lost in all the noise. And yeah. it was good that it was actually heard and not lost in the noise of an awful audio mix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, I think he's he's right to to come out, and you know, I don't think he's defending Tenet. I, I think he's defending the exhibition industry. I think he's he's saying that it's it's an important part of life then it's the, and it's it's an important industry and it needs to be supported i think that's you know reading underneath the eyes i don't know if you've seen edgar wright he uh has his article cinemas are vital that they should be they should be 
you know, the industry needs to be saved and it needs to, because it's, it's part of the fabric of, of, of our society. It's been there for such a long time. It's, it's a communal event that are quite, that's quite rare these days. Mm. Uh, it's a really interesting article, article. I thoroughly recommend seeking that out as well. And it's, you know, Christopher Nolan is at the forefront of that. He makes his films to be seen on a big screen. And he wants the industry to make exhibition industry to remain on that big screen. And fair play to him. I think it's, it's fantastic that he's come out and made this, this statement. Somebody in his position, you know, it does get heard. Mm, absolutely. Matt, what about you? I mean, obviously I heard your review on the podcast. So your sort of views on the film aside, but what about Cineworld? Do you think they were right to maybe close earlier? Because obviously now all cinemas are closed. So the choice was basically in their hands before it was taken out of their hands. I mean, you could argue Foresight on that. That's what Nolan said, though. I 100% agree with his point of view. You know, it's, it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. Like, so if people aren't coming to the cinema, they're not going to release films. But if they don't release films, people aren't going to come to the cinema. So so if more films had actually taken that leap and, and, and released, then it might have encouraged more people to come to the cinemas, which is a safe environment as well from a COVID perspective. Whether Tenet was the right film to drag people back in is, is probably what's up for question. You know, if, if it had been like a Bond or Black Widow or Wonder Woman, you're going to bring in a lot more sort of casual fans as well. Mm. That people will come out for the pure entertainment of it. So, but yeah, but, you know, if he hadn't released the film, then he'd probably be in the same boat as everyone else, where it's getting pushed and pushed and pushed, and it may sort of never get a cinema release. So, so yeah, so I think I think they are looking at it wrong. You know, it's if you look at what Tenant did compared to everything else that's been shown in the last few few months, you know, there is definitely still a market for having you know big releases at the cinema. So it is good that he's fighting the cinema's corner. Yeah, um, totally. You know, there are a few other people as well, like Patty Jenkins is, is adamant about Wonder Woman coming out in cinemas. Yeah. Whether that is Christmas or whether that gets delayed now as well. So, um, so yeah, so there's, you know, there's a lot to be said for a cinema release because it is that escapism. It's getting somewhere um, rather than just sticking to the norm. And with it being a safe environment as well, that you know, it will encourage people to come out and to do more. And if that helps them build their confidence to, to go back to restaurants or to go and do other things as well, then it's going to have a knock-on effect to, to helping everything recover. Yeah, totally. Couldn't agree more. You! We're now going to turn our attention onto our guest, uh, and actually, we're going to make Breen do some work for once. So, uh, over to you, Paul. Unbelievable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Matt, how you doing, mate? You right? Good, thank you. That's it. That's it. That's all I've got. Uh, no, just to start off, Matt, just for for our listeners as well, just let us know a little bit about yourself. Yes, yeah, so I've worked in cinemas. Well, it'll be ten years in January working in cinemas. I was a massive film fan way before that. So, you know, my my earnings from a previous job, my spare time was mostly spent at the cinema, just watching random things multiple times normally as well. So I got the opportunity to come and work in a cinema. So I've worked in like five different sites like around the country, as well as doing countless like covers here, there and everywhere in the dark depths of the UK. So so basically that sort of like brought me on to doing podcasts really. So um that kind of came from, uh, I was doing some lo- local marketing work with a radio station. Mike is one of my colleagues from another site, and he was on board with doing the radio show with me. And then kind of all through the lockdown, I, I kept on and on about doing something, and, and like we could still turn it into a podcast. And I kind of sat on the idea for ages, and then next thing you know, we're back at work. So it kind of got delayed even further. So we've kind of got together just to do quite an informal, we're keeping like, the episodes really short, you know, just talking about films, talking about things that we like, but then obviously with work and everything else, it's um, it's kind of just gone on a bit of a, an, an involuntary hiatus at the moment, but we are sort of like talking about getting back together and, and doing something else. And obviously, like, you know, inspired by listening to you guys as well, that you know, you, you've still got plenty to talk about, there's still plenty to cover. So, um, so hopefully we can kind of like put our own 
our own little uh, little swing onto that as well now. Obviously, you said films have been a sort of huge part of your life for a long time. What's your first memory of going to the cinema? I remember as a kid going to watch um, stuff like Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Back to the Future sequels. Definitely saw what I can't remember which one. Definitely saw one of them at the cinema. So I remember seeing them like with with family. Um, but then, like the first thing that really got me hooked, I think, was probably like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Which you know, looking back, you know, it's not aged all that well, so it's not a great film now. But uh, like, but ten year old. Although the line "cancel Christmas" might, uh, <laughs> might, might be relevant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Alan Rickman uh, should be running things, you know, like and, and having that sort of like, kind of Sheriff of Nottingham sort of approach to it. So I would definitely take Alan Rickman running things over Trump at the moment, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was that was probably the first thing that really got me hooked. And then I think I was probably about like ten at the time. And then, sort of like through my teen years, you know, especially when you get the freedom to go out and about mm. by yourself, and um, you know, used to go to the cinema regularly. And then, sort of like as mm. I grew up, and you know, and then multiplex cinemas became more of a thing as well. So there's far more to see. So you spend a hell of a lot of time watching films at the cinema, going through all like the uh, the bargain baskets at HMV and stuff like that, getting you know. 20 dvd well 20 vhs's for like 10 quid or whatever so um which are probably also my mom's loft somewhere i think but um <laughs> obviously you know i've been watching a lot a lot of films but we always like to ask our guests this question what's your guilty pleasure how, how long we got um <laughs> so i think a lot of the films i like probably people might see them as guilty pleasures because i do like silly fun films you know like 40 year old version and stuff like that it's it's just fun you know, and I enjoy watching films like that. So anything with a rock in it, I'll watch. Um, it's pretty much as a general rule. So I've got two, or three films written down as my guilty pleasures. One's not really a guilty pleasure. It's like my go-to film. That's uh, 1990s Navy Seals. It's got Charlie Sheen, Michael Bean, and Bill Paxton in it. It's sort of like a general run-of-the-mill 90s action film, but it, for some reason I absolutely love it, and I've watched it several times. Got my my DVD copy signed by Michael Bean as well, so it's kind of a wow. prized possession. And then I did think about having a bit of a a left field pick as well so there's a bollywood film called thugs of hindustan which came out in 2018 i think which is um basically it's like bollywood pirates of the caribbean that sounds amazing absolutely we we were showing it at work and we watched the trailer for it mentioned it to a few staff so we ended up watching it and it's absolutely brilliant it's ridiculous it's it's, there's musical numbers in it there's massive like dancing sequences and it's just really bizarre but we absolutely loved it and i looked at imdb and it's only got like a four point oh rating i think so um it didn't it wasn't as popular as um, as i thought it was i don't think but, but then probably my legitimate guilty pleasure is probably 21 jump street <laughs> i mean that's not a guilty pleasure that's just a great film but I, I when it came out i avoided it because it channing tames like the you know the dancing guy basically and and like kind of kind of avoided it and then um, i ended up watching it on tv randomly went like you know 18 months after it came out of the cinemas and absolutely loved it and then like the second one came out which is okay. you know probably an, an even better film but you know definitely wasn't what i expected from it so it's uh, so that's one of my those those two films really like the, the first and the second one the ones i just go back to they're both so so funny can you let everybody know where they can find your podcast uh yeah so if you uh with mike and matt at the movies uh, you can find us on twitter uh, which is my at mike and matt movies um search for us on facebook as well and then our podcast available on most podcast places so if you just do a quick search you should be able to find us fantastic nice amazing Cheers. great Robin Hood, prince of thieves this afternoon my political team came to me and laid out our plans for christmas so i told my team it's time to cancel christmas that's the way we're going to do it i've spoken to prince john great guy really great guy i care deeply about the people of nothing they wanted it so badly the timing for christmas is not right 
So moving on then to our regular feature, which is our two films in review. And this week, picked by me. First up, we've got Jungle from 2017, released by Umbrella Entertainment and now streaming on Netflix or Prime, wherever you choose to get your videos. There's nothing like the jungle at night. Insects, birds, it's like they're screaming at you. And then suddenly, it's just you and whatever you came looking for. If you want to be like every other tourist, anybody can go to Machu Picchu. But the jungle, this guy can take us there. How do you know that Carl is telling the truth? That's why you're here, the hidden world. Perfectly balanced. The problem is us with the cancer. Carl, what are you doing? So this film is based on the true story which follows Yossi Ginsberg, played by Daniel Radcliffe, who's an explorer that meets a mysterious guide that escorts him and his friends into the Amazon jungle. The journey turns it into a terrifying ordeal as the darkest elements of human nature and the deadliest threats of the wild force them into a fight for survival. So what did you guys think of this? I really like this movie. I have a huge amount of respect for Daniel Radcliffe. He's, the projects he chooses, now, I mean, obviously, he doesn't want for money. For the amount of money that he would have made from the Harry Potter franchise, uh, he, he doesn't want for anything. And he is so eclectic in his film choices from the jungle to a Swiss army man. If you guys have seen Swiss army man, that's a, it's an amazing film where basically he plays a corpse. Uh, and the, the guy, Paul, Paul Dano, Paul, da- Paul, Paul Dano uses him like a, you would use a Swiss army knife to solve sort of, sort of loads of loads of problems. It's an amazing film. The projects he picks are so out there and so different. Uh, I really admire him. And I think as an actor, I think he's really, really worked on his craft. And in Jungle, I really loved his performance. Uh, I wasn't sure about his accent at the beginning. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, that's possibly the only thing. Show me photos. You can take photos like this. Him standing there with the Indians, right? He says the rivers there are filled with gold and we're going to come back with our puppies. Even trust. Please watch that. It's burning, okay? Yes, no, that is true. Bear in mind for a large chunk of the film, it's him in the jungle. There's not much in the way of dialogue. He, his performance, I think, is fantastic. I think it's beautifully shot. I think that it's a really compelling true story uh, that, that, that's being told, which I didn't know about at all. I, I think he was great in it. I really, really enjoyed this. Obviously, you know, ultimately, the outcome of the film because it's a true story. I still found there was that level of peril. So I thought it was a fantastic film. How about you guys? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the accent because he's supposed to be from Israel and I did not get that from his accent. Uh, or not that I am one to talk because, as we know, my accents are absolutely atrocious, but I am not a jobbing actor. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Like, uh, Ratcliffe is just, I think, he, like, like sort of Patterson, uh, they're both sort of just trying to distance themselves from their respective franchises. And he's making some very risky choices. Do they all pay off? No. Is he totally down on his craft yet? No. But I think it will come. And I think like, so we talked about Dev Patel on the last podcast. I think these are guys that are sort of getting there. And I think he will deliver something amazing. And yeah, in, in this, he is very, very committed. If, if the accent had been absolutely nailed on, I think it would have been a 100% perfect performance. But unfortunately, that kind of just sort of sort of took me out of the film. But like towards the end, as you said, it's not even, there's no dialogue. It's just him in the middle of the jungle by himself dealing with poisoned ants and the elements. And all that stuff is absolutely fantastic. The cinematography is incredible. I don't know what I was expecting from this film, but from the trailer, it kind of made it look like a certain type of film where you know a lot of really inexperienced teenagers go into the forest or the jungle and they end up just killing each other and eating themselves that's not what this film is at all and i didn't know the true story before going into it so right up until the end i was like oh my god like is he going to make it some of the stuff didn't work for me so like the visualizations the trippy elements of this of the film didn't quite work and i do think the narrative lost its impact when it cut away to his friend um, alex russell as kevin gale and his his search on the other side trying to find him i think the film would have been more effective 
perspective if we just stayed with Radcliffe all the way through, right up to the very cusp, and then cut to to Kevin and his search to just try and um, go back and find him. But overall, um, yeah, good pick, Hammond. I, I would have never watched this. The way it was marketed, the way that even the trailer, we'll play a clip of the trailer in this podcast. When you listen to it, you think you're going to get a certain type of film, and that's not what this was at all. And I, I really respect it for that. Yeah, really, really good film. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really difficult thing to, to hold an audience's attention when you're trying to make a, a solo survivalist story. This did all right for me. I think I thought Radcliffe was excellent. I thought the chemistry between him and his two friends that he was exploring with played out excellently. I think those three worked so well together. The sound design, when we treated to Marcus removing his God, socks... Yeah was eye-wateringly <laughs> graphic. Yeah. And, and we get something similar when Radcliffe has got to perform some some minor forehead surgery. I mean, the sound oh, was just... That was, yeah. that was so great. <laughs> but there were a couple of things that were just missing for me. I agree with you, Ben. The, the psychosis scenes felt very odd and not very well thought through. The one hallucination with the native girl, I think, was excellent, but the, the others just didn't really work or have much relevance. I mean, he briefly mentioned earlier in the film, I went to Vegas and... An hour later, he has a hallucination about a, a Vegas mirage, and it just didn't really work. It's almost like they, they put all their time and attention on the jungle scenes, quite rightly so, and then realized, oh, well, actually, we need to kind of track his descent into madness. And it just felt a little bit of an afterthought, almost like a post-production. We need to somehow get this in there. And it made sense to me. I mean, if you're stranded in the jungle for 18, 19, 20 days, you are going to fantasize about a tray full of McDonald's, whatever it might be. But I completely agree with you. It just didn't work. Mm. I mean, I, I compare this to 127 Hours, for instance. Yeah, good that, shout. That film filled me with such a deep anxiety. I felt the panic, the loneliness, the sense of helplessness. I didn't get that in as much abundance in Jungle. And without wishing to spoil it, I wasn't really swept along with the final few. I didn't feel the same sense of elation, I guess. But, you know, we're, we're almost comparing apples to oranges. All in all, this mm. this was a very, very good watch, and I thought Radcliffe was exceptional in this. 127 Hours is a good shout. Danny Boyle is great at those sort of really slick visuals. The bit where he's fantasizing yeah. about the cold fizzy drink that's in his car dashboard, and that's a great example of, you know, making it as sort of feel more contained you're right the the sort of the psychosis scenes in this feel, felt hmm. like an afterthought whereas in 127 hours is very much embedded into the narrative yeah, yeah. Matt? yeah um i kind of agree with hammond really that the, the the ending kind of let it down i know it's based on a true story but it's you know you didn't really you weren't you know fighting for him at the end and it, they just kind of just found him and, and it pretty you know it might be how it happened but prior to that like once they were separated and, and lost in the jungle that was really really tense and i think you know you did kind of feel for for daniel radcliffe and, and you, you know you were concerned about what was happening and, and how he was going to get out of the situation so it's very very dark and gloomy film it's, it's another one of those films that i've watched now and i probably won't you know, been inclined to watch it again at any point. So, but like Daniel Radcliffe, I'm starting to really like. I was never like a massive Potter fan for Lord of the Rings reasons, mostly, which will obviously go on to Viggo Mortensen film afterwards. But yeah, I think like what Paul said about some of his film choices and the, the roles that he's actually taking on now are, you know, they are brave choices, and you know, he's doing it for the love of doing it, so rather than doing it for, for the paycheck. So, yes, yeah, so it was it was an interesting film. You know, not necessarily something I enjoyed, but um, I do. You know, I did like it as a as a film from a cinema cinematic point of view. Yeah, great. Yeah, well, I mean, like Ben said, the cinematography was spectacular. It would have just looked beautiful up on the big screen, like those big mm. sweeping shots of the Amazon totally. stuff would look great. Yeah, and you're absolutely yeah. right about the sound design. The not only the gory moments, but also the just the forest sounds were incredible. Mm. Yeah, yeah, really are. Yeah, they do such a good job. Great. So next up, we've got 2016's Captain Fantastic, released by Bleecker Street, currently streaming on Netflix, or you can pay for it on Prime if Netflix is not available to you. Right now, this is your first real test. Remember your training. They have hot dogs. Looks cooler. Poison water. Wow. 
so happy that our family is together. It's all local and organic. How did you kill those chickens? With an axe or a knife? <laughs> I, it's a rotisserie chicken, so you buy it on... It's already dead. Here we see Vigo Mortensen playing Ben Cash. Ben, along with his wife Leslie and their six children, live deep in the wilderness, isolated from society. Ben and Leslie devote their existence to raising their children, educating them to think critically, training them to be physically fit and athletic, and guiding them in the wild without the use of technology, and demonstrating the beauty of coexisting with nature. When Leslie dies suddenly, Ben must take his sheltered offspring into the outside world for the first time time thoughts on this one guys i really really like this film i had no expectations i didn't really know what it was about like the you know couple of line synopsis on netflix didn't really give that much away but i was very pleasantly surprised Viggo mortensen was absolutely brilliant and i think the way that you know he was aragorn but you don't he's not typecast as that you don't always look back and think oh that was him and you know, he does all these very different roles you know, so i was really pleasantly surprised and like the supporting cast was excellent as well and especially when you know there's a few recognizable faces and then when you look into it so one of the daughters played by annalise basso is in the snowpiercer series nicholas hamilton's in it um and there's also a cameo from erin mariarty who plays starlight in the boys so you know so the, the whole cast is really really good the music in the film is great as well so like, with the bagpipes early on in the film it's like the as the like the call to arms when they where they go in the bus and, and they head off to uh, to go and see the family. We can't go to mommy's funeral. We have to do what we're told. Some fights you can't win. The powerful control the lives of the powerless. We have to shut up and accept it. Well, fuck that. child of mine rendition towards the end of the film as well you know it's really good but they must kind of take away from it is you know he's, he's educated this family and he's brought them up to right apart from the normal and everything but ultimately they're grave robbers so it's a strange kind of like offset to it that they're brought up as being like really intelligent obviously they've got their reasons for doing it but in a nutshell that's what they end up doing in the film yeah i mean this was i i really enjoyed it for of the two films this was this was my favorite I was gripped from the start. I bought everything they were selling. Really thought-provoking stuff where we see the modern-day children obsessed with mobile phones and video games being confronted by others that have, have never seen such things. And I like the the argument between, well, what, what's right and what's wrong? You know, who's who's right in this argument? I thought that was great. My wife and I had a, a discussion about this over Vigo's character. You know, is he a great dad teaching his kid vital skills or is he actually a very dangerous man that is, in effect, abusing his children throughout the movie it's kind of left out to the audience to decide where you land on that one i of course land on the side of the psychopath and thought it was great um, I think the kids were very well <laughs> the kids were very well read they were highly philosophical they had the muscle structure and lung capacity of elite athletes but really in the real world where exactly does that get them and there was a really good scene between george Mackay and vigo mortensen where he's saying I, I know nothing i know what's in books but outside of that i know absolutely nothing and i thought that was a really strong scene i thought george Mackay mm. was was excellent in this a really nice compliment to Viggo Mortensen. Yeah. But I said this about Copperfield um, when we when we reviewed that, and it's equally true here that the entire cast was exceptional in this film. There wasn't a single character in this that missed a beat from kind of six-year-old children right the way through to, to the grandfather. I thought everyone in this played their role excellently. Loved it. Loved this film from start to finish. So my, I, 
the performances were great from start to finish. Uh, cinematography was wonderful. I think it was it was a good script. Uh, I think it was well edited. And I could see from the outside that it's very good. But I, I don't know why. I felt completely emotionally disengaged from this film from start to finish. I didn't feel anything for any of the characters. Maybe the George Mackay character at one point, because he, you know, he wanted to go to university and you know, basically being told that he couldn't. That speech that you mentioned about, you know, he knows everything from books but doesn't know anything really about life. That was the closest I think I came to being emotionally engaged with any of the characters. I, I, I can't, I couldn't tell you why, because I can see on the face of it, everything was very, very good. But it just left me completely cold. I didn't feel anything for the the combination of the film mm. at the end. You know, that was supposed to be the emotional crux of the film where you, you know, that letting of emotion. And I, I just didn't, I didn't have any of that. And I, and I, Maybe you can help me understand why. I, I obviously had a very different experience from certainly from the two of you that have spoken so far. I, I just I just felt emotionally disengaged from it. Yet I could see that all the component parts were very very good. Was that not maybe the point? I mean, Vigo Mortensen was almost training his children to be killers. They were they were very soulless. They had but, nothing in them apart from yeah, root but survival. It was, you, but you 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 need some sort of emotional anchor to engage you with the story, to pull you through. Mm. Uh, I, it may be, I know this This is going to sound really strange, bearing in mind, I, you know, I love a horror film and I love all that sort of stuff, but I felt that the the graphic killing at the beginning of the film, of the deer, was completely unnecessary and out of step with the tone of the rest of the film. And I don't know if, if it was that alone, because it, it really, there was no need for that level of detail to deal with that. Is this at the yeah. very beginning where he yeah. like coats uh, George McKay in blood? Yeah, yeah, and then that's fine. That 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 I didn't have an issue with. Is the actual interesting? So you have no issue the, with people coating each other in the no, blood? No, no, of- no, 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 no. <laughs> that, 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 that's that was. Yeah, it's supposed to inform him about the family, the fact that they've been wired. Get that, but it, it was just the the violence of the the thing that, that immediately preceded that mm. was out out of step completely with the rest of the film. I don't know what that did in terms of giving you any any anything in this in the story that sort of stood out as a moment that it, we, we've talked about being tonally a mess i mean it's not the film is not tonally a mess but that that's that particular scene that moment is out of step for me with the complete the rest of the film i'll tell you what the most out of step element of that whole beginning is is the font captain fantastic as george mckay is like <laughs> taking up the whole <laughs> scene with his face covered in blood as some sort of ritual sacrifice and then you've got this really <laughs> poptastic kind of childish font coming up like hey it's captain fantastic everything's fun and like no it's not it looks really grim can i shock you for a moment paul go on i completely agree with you there is something that just wow uh, this film just did not connect with me whatsoever i appreciated it i appreciated the cast are fantastic i think all the performances were great i love the way that it was shot i think the pacing was great the script was great i like the world they created especially the bus it's almost the bus as a character itself you could really believe that these people live in this world but i don't think the film does enough to really have any sort of real life repercussions or consequences for the let's face it the abuse that Vigo Mortensen is putting his family through I think there should have been more done to sort of say look this is what happens when you raise a family in this way you bring them out into the real world and here's the interactions they have I mean as it is Vigo Mortensen obviously a very intelligent I should say the the character Ben Cash very well read very intelligent guy clearly wants to just bring up his family this way and I would have liked to have known more about why he made that choice but yeah he just comes across as a bit of a dick like it just becomes like a bit of a like a smug know-it-all saying, look, America's absolutely wrong and I've got it the right way. And the way that he keeps brandishing this idea of let's stick it to the man, like in something like 
when you think of School of Rock and Jack Black saying that to the children there, that's fun. That's, that's you know, that's that kind of like, yeah, stick it to the man, the heavy metal music. But in this, it's like, there's some real world repercussions that I just didn't see in this film for raising your children this way. And yes, at the end of the film, Matt, you're absolutely right. They have committed so many crimes, you know, point in which grave robbing being the latest one. And I don't feel that there's any sort of, the, the film doesn't do anything with that. And maybe you're right, uh, Hammond. Maybe that's for us to decide whether or not he is right or wrong. But it just left me feeling really, really cold. I wanted more from that. I wanted to understand why did Ben and his wife decide to live like this? You know, I wanted to see more of the sort of the interactions with the real world and seeing some sort of a balance come from that. As it is, they just became the worst house guests ever, where they're there <laughs> staying with um, Ben Cash's sister and his family and just being really obnoxious, stealing all the wine, openly swearing in front of the children and not respecting the rules of that household. It's just, yeah, he just came across as arrogant. Mind to ask you a quick question? Sarge has just turned eight, by the way. The Bill of Rights. Amendment one. Congress should make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Regurgitating memorized amendments isn't what I'm asking for. Just tell me something about it in your own words. It's not the Bill of Rights. Even more like China. Yeah. Jesus Christ. You made your point. We get it. It's very impressive. All of you. The two things that stuck out for me was when they went on Operation Free the Food. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it stood against everything he was for. He was all about, you know, your moral obligation and, mm. you know, being an upright citizen and yet training your children to go and steal hundreds of dollars worth of food made, made no sense to me. But previously, mm. when I mentioned 40 year old virgin, the scene at the end when they're singing at their kind of Viking-esque <laughs> funeral, reminded me exactly of the final scene in 40-Year-Old Virgin when they're singing Age of Aquarius after Steve Carell's lost it. Mm. They were almost a side-by-side, and it made it almost laughable for me because that scene went on for far too long, and it was far too familiar. Yeah. The interpretation of that song was fantastic, but that scene yeah. just felt very twee. Mm. When I was watching this film, Hammond, I was thinking of you, actually. Do you think you have a child? Would you ever consider maybe doing what... Um, I mean, as you've said many, many times, you sympathise with the psychopath we review the show <laughs> <laughs> was there any inkling to think hey do you know what i'm doing it all wrong let's go and live in the forest no do you know what but i, th I think as all parents do it, it's all about tempering what you're exposing your children to limiting exposure mm. to social media and television and film etc as a younger man my dream was to buy a vw camper van jump in it and just disappear across europe so i certainly love the ideals of off the grid living but that's not what i would want for my daughter so i certainly think that yes I, a hybrid of both i think certainly respecting other people's houses i mean i wouldn't take a, a seven-year-old mm. madison to someone's house and be like yeah. well it's fine in europe so i'm going to allow my daughter to drink a fairly <laughs> hefty glass of red wine at your dinner table it's uh, yes yeah so unsurprisingly i've got a short list watch this five will has to be on that list yeah, that's my extensive list, which I'm sure will be edited down. Yeah, he's such a smart ass. So we're now on to our question portion of the pod, starting with our review-related question. This was inspired by Jungle, and I wanted the guys to think about their favourite film, which is set or is predominantly features a wood, forest, or jungle. I'm going to kick this off. It's a film that I watched recently, actually, during the first lockdown. It's Embrace the Serpent from Cairo Gorilla from 2015. So this is about a young shaman in the 1900s and the Colombian Amazon rainforest who helps a sick German explorer to find a rare healing plant shot in black and white. Insane cinematography, such a rich, dense way that it's shot. You see 
some great tribes people living their lives. It's set between two sort of narratives. You've got the original expedition in the 1900s, and then there's another one 30 years later that's trying to find the trail of the original expedition. It's spiritual. It's everything you would kind of expect from something like this. There's some horrific moments in it as well as they come to terms with nature and what the jungle sometimes does to people. Paul especially would fucking love this film. So if you get a chance to watch it, um, do do catch up with it. Yeah, nice. Um, I'm going to go back to 1999, and it's only it's it's almost a bit of a guilty pleasure my my pick for this. And it's only because towards the end of the late 90s was when I really discovered going to the cinema. It was every Friday night, me and the lads would be in the cinema, regardless of what was on. We would always watch the newest release. And this film really stuck with me, and it's The Blair Witch Project. Nice. Now, I get that on the surface, it's not a very good film, but it is the one film from the kind of the late 90s that really stuck with me and actually genuinely freaked me out a little bit. What? What kind of stuff? No way. They're all over the place. Holy shit. Blair Witch 2, obviously a huge pile of shit and did no credit at all to the first one. But for such a low-budget, barely scripted, mostly ad-libbed film, The Blair Witch Project for me is is one of my favourite films kind of set in, in Woodland. It, it stuck with me for, for a very, very long time. So I could go down the guilty pleasure route and go with Welcome to the Jungle because he's got the rock in it. Um, and uh, I think in terms of like having a proper pick, I'd have to say Platoon. Nice. Um, I think it's just, it, it, I think there's just everything about that film is just amazing. You know, like the like the violence of it and the reality of it uh, and also like the emotional buy into it as well. And, and, and obviously the, the, the score to go along with the film as well. So. That was, to be honest, that was the first thing that popped into my head when I started thinking about films in yeah. sort of like jungle settings as well. Amazing film. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Fantastic. So, as you weren't surprised, there's a bit of a list. Uh, I, will, I will just quickly rattle through and then go, to, go, go straight to my answer. Is the top of your list Tropic Thunder? Can we just get there, please? <laughs> no, it's the not. point of this whole section, Paul. It's, it's explaining why these things mean something to us and why so, you've chosen uh, them. Uh, Cabin in the Woods, The Mission, Apocalypse Now. Deliverance, First Blood, <laughs> Monsters, uh, and then finally my, my my actual answer, which is Predator. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, okay. Complete uh, testosterone fueled action romp in the jungle. Which Schwarzenegger is best? Big knives, big guns, great, great alien. Just a fantastic film from start to finish, and mm. the the start of what could have been a really successful franchise, but then. Gradually fell apart as the years went by. I quite enjoyed Predator 2, but the original Predator, and it stands up to, to repeat viewing now. It, it really does. I think it's a, it's a great, great movie. So moving on into question two, which was inspired by the recent events in America. What recent events Who is that? Is your Hammond. I've not seen anything. Coronavirus. Royal Rumble. I don't know. It was one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so who is your most beloved on-screen American president from film or TV. Oh, I'm glad you threw in the TV part because I found this really difficult. What? Uh, so I, yeah, I don't know. I did because there's obviously there's a big list and, and there's a yeah. couple that sort of jump straight to the top. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go straight for the TV one then and uh, and not have an extensive list for this one. I'm going for Martin Sheen as Jed Bartlett in The West Wing. Everyone's waiting for you. I don't know how much longer. I don't want to feel like this anymore. You don't have to. I don't want to go to sleep like this. You don't have to. I want to speak. Say it out loud. Say it to me. This is more important than re-election. I want to speak now. Say it again. This is more important than re-election. 
I want to speak now. Now we're in business. Written brilliantly by Aaron Sorkin, brilliantly performed. If you want there to be a president with compassion and intelligence, you want Jed Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen. So he's my choice. Fantastic. How can I? How can a podcast run through my fingers without me mentioning the incredible Daniel Day Lewis and talk about his portrayal of Lincoln in Lincoln? Yeah, I mean it was a toss up between DDL and Jamie Fox in White House Down. I think I've made the right choice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love White House Down. <laughs> yes, Lincoln is dialogue heavy. The two and a half hour runtime doesn't exactly flash past, but the audience is treated to yet another Daniel Day Lewis performance where you genuinely could very well believe you're staring directly at Abraham Lincoln. He's absolutely staggering. In his book, Euclid says this is self-evident. You see, there it is. Even in that 2,000-year-old book of mechanical law, it is a self-evident truth that things which are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. He went full method for this as well. He would only speak to the other cast members in kind of Abraham speak. He would text them in Abraham Lincoln style speech. And if they replied in modern day American, whatever, he just wouldn't reply. He wouldn't wouldn't respond to anybody speaking to him in modern day language. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Which I love. I love his commitment to his roles. Uh, and I just think Lincoln was an absolutely spectacular movie. Sounds absolutely irritating. I could not work with someone like that. (laughs) Just inconsistent. Matt, do you want to go next? Yeah, I'll I'll cross President Sawyer off my list then. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I was was assuming the West Wing would have been picked up already. Want to give an honourable, not to a president, but to a Prime Minister, Hugh Grant in Love Actually. (laughs) Oh, okay, yeah. Which is a film that I I appreciate far more now than I did when it first came out. Finding presidents is is hard. they tend to be like bit parts in films. Um, so I was thinking like maybe Jack Nicholson in Mars Attacks. Um, He's awful. <laughs> He's the worst president ever. Uh, tr- Trump will give him a run for his money. but <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. He, he basically he tries to prosper peace with the um, CGI killing aliens, even when they're like literally killing everything. And he's still saying, no, they're here for peace. They're here for peace. What's this? Oh, that's your executive order authorizing full use of our nuclear deterrent, sir. <laughs> Are you out of your mind? I'm not going to start a war. We're already at war, sir. We have to nuke them. We have to nuke them now. Annihilate. Kill. 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 Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Terrible. And terrible father to Natalie Portman. <laughs> I'm not saying your choice is wrong, Matt, but... You come on our podcast, damn it. There's rules. <laughs> I, I thought it was appropriate for the modern era that that's probably quite accurate as to uh, what would happen. That is fair enough. I think for me, the hands-down answer, and it has been for the nearly 20 years now, is Dennis Haysbert as President David Palmer from TV's 24. He is absolutely amazing in that role. Never compromises uh, his morals. Even when everyone is conspiring against him in his administration, even his family are conspiring against him. And I love the fact that at every sort of dubious choice that he could potentially make, he always takes the high moral ground and then ultimately decided not to run for a second election because he knew he'd be compromised if he did it. So yeah, absolutely hands down, number one answer, uh, Palmer. I am amazed you did not say Bill Pullman in Independence Day. I was Day. waiting for somebody to come up with that. I thought somebody <laughs> might come up with that. You've given us the impression so many times I thought this was coming out. You know, I decided to keep it fresh. Uh, I thought either your brain would also say Harrison Ford in Air Force One. I'm amazed. I'm amazed. By oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, the yeah. only other thing I had was uh, Peter Sellers as uh, Merkin Muffley in <laughs> Doctor Strange. Love. He is, he is, he is masterful in that film. No, let's go again. He does not get it. Get it. 
Super. Great. Well, that does bring us almost crashing to the end. We just need to know what we are reviewing on episode five. Mercer, hit us with your picks. So we're heading back to the courtroom, guys, because Steve McQueen's uh, new series, Small Act, the first short film from the... I say short film, it's, it's actually two hours long. It's Mangrove, and that is coming to BBC iPlayer on the 15th of November. This is the story of the 1970s Notting Hill restaurant owner who started a peaceful march to the Mangrove police station to protest a police racism. Um, so that's the first choice. And then the second one is the 40-year-old version, which is on Netflix. A down-on-luck playwright thinks the only way she can salvage her voice as an artist is to become a rapper at 40. That brings us to the end. But as we are close to the finishing line, I thought that's how I would frame this week's question with a final line. With the topic and what's happening in America in mind, Good afternoon, Mr. President. Sorry I've been away so long. I won't let you down again. Is the final line from which film oh well, that rings a bell it's another corker hammond that's a good question that's a good question so i can hear the line being said that's going to bug me all week that is your question for the end of episode four don't google it brain this week for god's sake no no <laughs> no I, I i i do recognize this one so i will good yeah. super well and that is it from me now you've got your question you've heard my ponderings and my ramblings this week thank you all very much for listening and for sticking with us to the end paul ben pleasure as always matt thank you so so much for joining us mate it's been a real pleasure cheers guys thanks for having me on um and if you listen to this go and check out my mike and matt at the movies podcast as well thanks very much well i'm not going anywhere because i think the i think this is a whole farce it's fake news i don't think this podcast is ending and i think we need to <laughs> get a subpoena involved to prove that the podcast isn't ending so i'm just going to stay on you guys can go but i'm, I'm staying here uh, no <laughs> bye everyone and see you on the next episode cool yeah thanks everybody for listening uh, be good and if you can't be good be careful take care of yourselves be safe and we'll speak to you very soon awesome thanks guys and we'll catch you all on episode five you've been listening to have you seen this with paul breen ben hammond and ben mercer the main theme was written by akira ifakubi and remixed by ben mercer with beats supplied by lander please like and subscribe and share where possible and check us out on facebook facebook.com forward slash seen this s-c-e-n-e this for all the latest updates all views and opinions in the podcast are those of their hosts Number five, you've got penis, Feenies, Feenies and Ferb. I think it's an animated film. Did you first say penis? He did. I did say penis, he, yeah. He meant penis. To say Phine- 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 and Ferb. Phineas and Ferb. I think you'll find if there was a film called Penis and Ferb, I would be watching it. <laughs>